Buongiorno and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy and international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tecum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. Happy New Year and welcome back to the Global Podcast. We're starting this week's episode on the main topic gripping us all, and that's the escalating U.S.-Iran tensions. Now, just yesterday, at the time of recording, Iran had bombed the U.S. airbase in Iraq in retaliation for the U.S.'s assassination of Irani General Qasem Soleimani. And General Soleimani wasn't just a general, but a key influential figurehead for the Iranian government in its Middle East operations, from Lebanon to Iraq and Assad's Syria. Now, as tensions continue to rise between the two countries, it's leaving many wondering, what will this actually mean? Does this mean a war? Is there more U.S.-involved conflict in the Middle East? And what does this mean for Iran? While we don't have time to ask these key questions, our main focus on today's episode is what will this mean for businesses in the Middle East and the United States? Should there be conflict, and especially for those focused on greater social impact in the region? Joining us on the podcast is Sami Hamdi, who is the Editor-in-Chief of the International Interest, an experienced geopolitical risk consultant. He has extensive experience in the MENA region, having been a television reporter and talk show host for over 10 years. He has appeared on the likes of Al Jazeera, Sky News, and TRT World News. We also had the pleasure of featuring him on the Global Podcast on episode 16, where we discussed the benefits of investing in conflict zones. Sounds dodgy for that title, but it has more humanitarian scope than you think. So, Sammy, welcome back to the Global Podcast. Thanks for having me, Gessie. Right, let's get to the nitty-gritty of this because it seems it keeps changing as we go on, and hopefully this episode will still be relevant when it goes live. But let's start and get some real clarity on what is precisely going on between the U.S. and Iran. Now, I was just recently in the United States. I came back this week, and when the death of Soleimani occurred, I was just baffled both by the level of misunderstanding and, just to be frank, sheer ignorance with regard to the way both Iran and who this figure was uh, being portrayed in the U.S. media, and I felt that it was a complete gap. So, first of all, briefly, could you tell us who was General Qasem Soleimani, and why was he so important for the Trump administration to really apparently want to dispatch him? Qasem Soleimani was the most powerful military commander in the region. He was a man who single-handedly conducted the military operations that rescued the Assad regime in Syria, He convinced the Russians to get involved in Syria. Uh, He managed to take advantage of Barack Obama's attempts at rapprochement with Iran to regiment the militias in Iraq. They were sporadic before. He managed to get them into a regimented unit, uh, so much so that when ISIS got to the gates of Baghdad, 
the Iraqi army was so weak as a result of uh, Iran's uh, influence in Iraq where it weakened the army because it feared a coup. They made the militia so strong that the U.S. had no choice but to accept Qasem Soleimani's leadership of the militias and put them in the main fighting uh, against ISIS. This is what people mean when they say Qasem Soleimani fought ISIS. Qasem Soleimani was also the kingmaker in Baghdad. If you look at the governments, if you look at the way Muqtada Sadr and Maliki, Maliki is the former prime minister, Muqtada Sadr, many Americans will know him because he led the Mahdi army who gave a lot of grief uh, to the US army in Iraq. Whenever they used to argue, whenever the part Shiite parties used to clash, he would fly in from Tehran, he'd sit them all in a room, he'd listen to them argue and then say to them in the end, right, look, this is how it's going to go. You're going to get this post, you're going to be prime minister, you're going to be... That was the scale and of, of this power of... Qasim Soleimani, and that's the kind of man that we're talking about. This gap that you were talking about in terms of Qasim Soleimani, I think comes from a lack of uh, interest from many of these people in the region, or lack of attention uh, paid in this region. Because for all the Syrian victims, you have to remember that military operations in Syria, in some cases a village would be surrounded and the villagers would be given two choices, either to be massacred or to be loaded on buses, buses and relocated. Qasem Soleimani's military operations involved demographic changes in Syria between Sunni and Shiites. He would replace Sunni areas with Shiite areas because he believed they would be more aligned with Iran's goals. And this is why you have many Arabs who are saying the age-long tradition which is Allah God destroys the tyrant with a tyrant. In other words, that Qasem Soleimani will be mourned in Iran, he'll be mourned in certain sections of Iraq, but believe me when I say that his victims in Syria uh, and uh, Lebanon and Iraq uh, will not be grieving for him. Precisely, because as you just basically highlighted, he was doing the bidding of Iran. And as we know, Iran tends to have this focus on particularly Shia, uh, Shia focus. Uh, which obviously happens to be the the bane for Saudi Arabia, particularly with its more Sunni focus in that sense. Now, going in regards to the United States apparently wanting to dispatch him, you know, they were classifying him as a terrorist and whatnot, with this complete desire to get rid of him. What does this now mean for Iran, very briefly? I think we, we have to remember that the U.S. did not want to get rid of Qasem Soleimani over the years. They designated him as a terrorist, they put pressure on him, but we have to remember that Iran and the US have not always been antagonistic. Qasem Soleimani provided the US some sort of stability in Iraq by making sure a government was always formed. Remember, the Iraqis hate the presence of the US and Iran in Iraq. The US has struggled to deal with the socio-political dynamics in Iraq. Qasem Soleimani was doing that job, so in some ways their interests were more aligned. Why Qasem Soleimani was killed was because of Donald Trump because Trump was so angry that Qasem Soleimani publicly humiliated him. So they killed the US contractor, the news reported it, the US felt it had to respond because the domestic audience heard about it. They bombed certain areas. Qasem Soleimani decided or allegedly got all of the pro-Iran allies, entered the green zone and stormed the embassy. For those who don't understand the significance of this, one, it was so public. The storming of the U.S. Embassy brought back memories of 1979 revolution in Iran, which brought down the regime. And also, it was so public and such a, dis a challenge to U.S. authority in such a public manner. The second significance, it was done in the green zone, which nobody can enter without the government's permission. You have to put it into context. There have been protests in Iraq for months, but they've never been able to enter the green zone because it's so heavily protected. In other words, the fact that the embassy was stormed in the green zone was Qasem Soleimani saying to Donald Trump, I have the government in my hands 
and I can humiliate you whenever I want. So Trump, because he's so close to elections, because he has these impeachment uh, hearings, because his party base relies on him making America great again and making America look like this great power that makes its enemies fear and makes its enemies bend the knee, Trump responded by killing Qasem Soleimani. Iran was not expecting this. And this is why we see now there are rocket attacks with no US casualties, cyber attacks on low-level government websites, posturing, a lot, of, a lot of barking, a lot of talking, but nothing to provoke an all-out war because Iran is worried that it cannot predict what Trump will do next. So when we're talking about US and the impact on Iran, Iran has, where yesterday it looked like it was a very strong nation, now it looks like it genuinely doesn't want war. Trump called its bluff, and whether people like it or not, Trump has actually come out of this much stronger. Quite intriguing in that sense, because it allows me to understand the next question, because, of course, at the time of this recording, it has just been revealed that apparently Iran has accidentally, according to the reports, uh, threw a missile at the Ukrainian Airlines flight yesterday, which already uh, sent one puzzled in regards to when it occurred, because Ukraine is this random third party coming in. But given this recent episode, how much worse has this now made the U.S.-Iran tensions? And what other countries are subsequently being affected by this? I mean, we've, I've just briefly highlighted uh, Ukraine now being thrown into this. And of course, the killing took place in Iraq. I think when we're talking about the impact of it, I think uh, we have to remember that we're talking in the midst of a hysteria where Twitter and Facebook was talking about World War Three, where people were talking about this military maneuverings in the region, the Hormuz Strait closing and the like. But actually, if you look at shipping traffic in the Hormuz Strait, for example, it hasn't been much affected. When we look at the, 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 the movement in the region, the way that the uh, experts are talking within the region, Nasser al-Duwail and other people, they're all welcoming this de-escalation intention. They're talking and saying that it is a genuine de-escalation. Moreover, given that Iran has just had its military commander taken out in such a brazen display, and given that it clearly doesn't want an all-out war, People are not expecting growing instability to take place uh, in the Middle East, at least until after the U.S. elections, because Iran will privately hope, privately hope that Trump will lose the election. So I think there are concerns. There are people talking about uh, restricting their operations. But in terms of if operations have actually been restricted, aside from airlines that are not flying in that uh, airspace, but I assume they will fly in the airspace very soon, given that uh, they believe that the Ukraine was an anomaly issue uh, because somebody must have missed hit the, uh, the missile which hit the plane, which is very unfortunate and very sad to have uh, more than 100 victims uh, over what was quite simply a chest pumping or chest beating uh, from the Iranians. Uh, I think when we look at uh, how other nations are reacting, they're actually expecting a period of peace at least until we find out who the next U.S. president is. It's quite intriguing, and in fact, it's quite soothing to hear that fact, because as you've indicated, there seems to be a complete escalation in regards to how they're responding. Um, and it's interesting to say that the fact that it doesn't appear that there will be a conflict happen until at least post-election, which makes me want to turn towards then the more business aspect, because earlier this week, uh, at the time of recording, Market Watch ran a report saying that markets will likely remain volatile amid the expectations of intensifying Iran-U.S. conflict. How much of that now is, is being exaggerated then? But And if that's the case, what were the repercussions would be to the global markets if there was a conflict? I think, and this is the perhaps the crude nature of the way that the world works, the spike in oil prices benefits all of the nations in the region, including Iraq. 
We have to remember that the reason that a lot of these countries are going through an economic crisis is because low oil price puts severe pressure on the coffers. When we're talking about a country like Saudi Arabia, more than 90% of the economy uh, relies on oil. The UAE, despite its years of attempts at diversification, still relies heavily on oil. Qatar, less so because it has its natural gas. But the fact of the matter is that the high oil price benefits it. The high oil price actually puts the government in a more stronger state than perhaps it was uh, beforehand. You'll notice also that arms companies have suddenly seen that their stocks also grew, their stocks also rise, rose. The security companies, uh, likewise, the same thing. But when we're talking about it from an economic perspective, Mohammed bin Salman will feel vindicated that about his aggressive policies towards Iran, and he'll also be happy with the spike in oil price that eases some of the pressure that has been brought about by the failure of investors to put their money into Aramco. He had to coerce domestic businesses to put their business in Aramco. But also I want to uh, make a point when we're talking about the economy is that the reason why the conflict would have had an impact on the economy is not necessarily because people thought every, everything would go to war. It is because, let's take Iraq for example. Iraq, you have a thriving startup scene. You have a thriving sustainable uh, sustainability industry that is growing rapidly. You have these Iraqi youths who are returning from Europe, returning from the US, bringing that money, trying to make these organizations and trying to transgress or, or sorry, tress, uh, to uh, go beyond the sectarian lines, so this Shia, Sunni, Kurdish and the like. We have companies like Sunduk, for example, which is designed to help assist uh, companies uh, uh, to, to grow and adapt. And I think these protests that we saw in Iraq are designed by a new generation who actually want to promote that sort of sustainable economy, promote that sort of startup investment, decide to build an economy that's not reliant on militias, that's not reliant on war. Let's remember why people go to fight with these militias. It's because it offers a salary. But now you have this young generation who are actually with the startup scene. Baghdad is becoming the scene of a lot of these conferences that are growing. If these companies decide because of a fear of a conflict that I think will not happen, if they decide to back out because of fear of this conflict, you put under threat the very means, the very movement that has been emerging in the likes of Iraq, that has been emerging in Kuwait, that has been emerging in Saudi, that has even been emerging in Yemen, which is riven with conflict in the, some of these cities. You are disenfranchising them and removing the power that they have. These Iraqi protests have the potential to bring down the Iraqi government. And if they do bring down the Iraqi government, people have to understand that this generation of Iraqis that has come up, that is driving the startup scene, and I cannot exaggerate this enough or, or overestimate it enough, just how significant the startup scene is these days in Iraq. If, the, if, if, the, if they manage to ride out this fear of conflict and gamble, at the end of the day, business is risk, and gamble, they will find that out of this misery that they're seeing in the Middle East, there is definitely a ray of hope. Definitely a ray of hope. And when you mention Iraq, I know myself, Erbil is a great example of that, particular progress that it's been making. I mean, even in regards to to random other aspects, such as fashion, apparently there's this whole aspect, the hipsters of Erbil, which have been receiving a multitude of praises suddenly. I mean, it's so much development from a social aspect, from an economic aspect, and as a business aspect, as you in indicated, which is quite disheartening when many in the outside are not really realizing the growth that Iraq has experienced, of course, not in an exponential, magical, wonderful way as one expects, because again, it's still going through some conflict. Well, some is 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 putting it lightly, but nonetheless, it has had progress. Um, 
and that's the one thing I want to understand is because Iraq is finding itself a bit at the epicenter of this particular tension. So what could this mean if, for example, the tensions were to continue to escalate, if that was to occur? What could this mean for sustainable development in the region and particularly for Iraq and the progress it's made? I think, to, to be honest, let, let's suppose that tensions escalate. I don't think Iran is in a position to go to war, nor do I think that if you had asked me six months ago and said to me, can Iran go to war with the U.S., I would have said yes, because the militias were very powerful. Muqtada Sadr and Hadi al-Amiri, who both have militias, they were dominating the government. They were the kingmakers. They were the power brokers. They were the ones debating who should be prime minister, and they were dividing the cake, the Iraqi government, between themselves. But when you look now with the Iraqi protesters who are shouting Iran barra barra, Iran out out, who are calling for the disbanding of these militias, Iran's militias in Iraq cannot mobilize with the same ease that they once did. Likewise, in Lebanon, Hezbollah, who were the defining militia in Syria, we have to remember in 2013, the Free Syria Army was marching on Damascus. When they passed a certain point, Hezbollah crossed the border and attacked them from the rear. They, they cut off the supply line and the Free Syria Army was decimated. And then the terrorist group started emerging because the Free Syria Army could no longer keep them in check. So in other words, Hezbollah cannot move because the Iraqi protests are there. And the protests are taking place even in t t traditionally pro-Iran areas like Karbala in Iraq, Najaf in Iraq, the uh, southern Lebanon and the like. So in other words, Iraq, Iran's main weapon cannot be used. Russia, if you look at its conduct in Syria, it doesn't attack any area where there are U.S. troops. In other words, it doesn't want a full-on conflict, conflict with the U.S. So it's not going to come to Iran's aid. Neither is China. And this is why I believe even when you look inside Iran, we saw the, the, the sight of thousands of people mourning Qasem Soleimani. But we also saw thousands three months ago protesting on the streets, economic protests, and we had so many casualties as the security forces cracked down on them because they were complaining about their economic conditions. So Iran neither has a war economy nor can it rely on its proxy army. And this is why I believe that Iran won't go to war. So when I'm talking about tensions now, I'm talking about tensions in the sense of, for example, tankers getting seized, maybe another attack on an oil facility uh, in Saudi Arabia. But my question to anybody involved in sustainable investment is the targets that Iran would target have nothing to do with the kind of projects that sustainable investors actually get involved in. It's got nothing to do with that startup scene with Iraq. It's nothing to do with green energy. It's nothing to do with building sustainable infrastructure uh, in Iraq or in Saudi Arabia. They would never be targets for Iran. And they would never be. So even if you look at where the American air bases are in Iraq, they're not in densely populated areas. Even Ain al-Assad, which was attacked yesterday, is a sparsely populated area bar where the actual base uh, is. In other words, if we're talking about it from a sustainability perspective, if we're talking about it from sustainable investors, the, it, the hype may concern them. But the areas where they invest, the projects that they actually get involved to, in my opinion, has nothing to do with any of the targets that Iran would likely target in the event of a conflict. Quite intriguing in that aspect. So nonetheless, any sort of business that is focused on sustainable development can still be sustainable even during any particular if, if there was an escalation going on they just simply wouldn't be a target of course uh, in, in a perfect magical world in that aspect and of course so what you're indicating is the fact that there's really not much to fear and particularly in regards to this whole conflict it seems to be quite hyped which we've seemed to notice in regards to trump as as you've indicated this morning when he completely said oh it seems that iran has decided to scale down and so on and so forth it just seems to be quite obvious that no Nobody wants this conflict but 
you know, as you've indicated six months ago, this was, you wouldn't have predicted that Iran could potentially take the United States to war. And of course, now that we look now, Iran would definitely not be doing so. With this aspect, what do you feel could happen uh, in the next coming months? So could you see tension flaring up again? Or do you still see that it's going to be continuous to where the United States and Iran will do their best to ensure nothing will happen? I think in the next few months, what we're expecting is we'll expect some more posturing from Iran. Uh, but nothing major. As we saw, they shot all those rockets, but didn't uh, kill a single U.S. soldier. That was intentional. That was a message. They told their domestic population that they killed 80 U.S. soldiers. Uh, domestically, it was received very well in Iran. Uh, they actually didn't kill any U.S. soldiers. So domestically in the U.S., Trump benefited. They both came away from this uh, with their prestige. Uh, Iran restored some of its prestige, and Trump restored that semblance of U.S. power. So PR-wise, I think they both won. We might see some posturing here and there, but let's remember there have been statements coming out from Iran's uh, militias in Iraq. Muqtada Sadr said, uh, where last week he said, I would restore the Mehdi army. He said, no, I'm going to tell them to stand down uh, in a sign of a clear uh, de-escalation. I think we'll enter the U.S. elections. Iran will be watching with much intrigue. They'll be hoping a Democrat wins. But even if Trump wins, uh, either way, Iran is heading for negotiations. The reason why they won't negotiate today is because they don't want the world to say Trump belittled them, Trump humbled them, and so they came to the table. They will come to the table when they feel like the world is going to say Iran is uh, annoying, it's a uh, power to be respected, and it's coming to the table, and let's hope that there's peace. In other words, they will come when they feel like they have their izzah, they have their pride uh, intact. I think this could happen in the next few months, uh, if we're optimistic. It could happen uh, in the next year. I think if Trump wins the election, I think Trump will also go for negotiations. I do believe, I do subscribe to the belief that Trump doesn't like war. Trump doesn't like sending U.S. troops uh, into conflicts. We have to remember that when he went into his uh, U.S. election campaign, it was all about bringing the soldiers home. Why are we getting involved in conflicts that have nothing to do with us? And these nations need to pay if they want protection. He only sends troops when he has to or when he's humiliated, as we've seen in Syria and Iraq. I think Iran, too, wants to negotiate. Iran signed the, J the, the, the Iran nuclear deal. It signed it, which clearly showed that it's ready to negotiate uh, and sit down. It is ready to sit down with Donald Trump and discuss a new deal. It doesn't want to go to war in the region. It doesn't feel it has the capabilities. It wants to be a respected power and doesn't want to be seen as a, as, 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 as a weak power or as a country that is belittled. And that's why I think everything shows that we're going to negotiations. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But I do think it won't happen before the U.S. elections. Everything happens after the U.S. elections. Well, we'll have to wait then for after the U.S. elections to see what goes on. Well, Sammy, this has been most enlightening and actually quite pleasant news to hear that the fact that in, in theory with the business world there's not much to worry about but at the same time this is still quite an interesting tension to watch and inshallah it's going to be as you predicted where it's not going to escalate as it happens but sammy always a pleasure to have you and once again to the listener i do suggest you listen to episode 16 where sammy also gives his brilliant insight regarding investigating conflict so take a good listen to that sammy once again thank you for coming thank you that brings us to the end of this edition of the Global Podcast. I'm Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tech and Global Consultancy, which produces this series. Please do check out our website at www.paxtechandglobal.org. That's P-A-X-T-E-C-U-M-G-L-O-B-A-L.org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of Pax on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, 
please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next week for another edition, and until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!